0: section 30 of essays on art this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org essays on art by johann wolfgang von goethe translated by samuel gray ward section 30 the pictures of philostratus part 7 Prologue to the Expedition of the Argonauts Cupid and Ganymede are playing in the court of Jupiter, the one distinguishable by his Phrygian cap, the other by his bow and wings, but their character is yet more strongly marked. You see it indicated by the game of dice they are playing on the floor. Cupid springs up with haughty derision of his antagonist. Ganymede has just lost one of the two remaining throws is making his last cast with care and anxiety his features are admirably suited to his situation the cheek sad and hollow the eye lovely but sunk in gloom the well-informed reader will be at no loss to divine the artist's meaning nearby three goddesses are standing whom no one can help recognizing minerva in her native armor looks out with her blue eyes beneath her helm, her masculine cheek tinged with maidenly modesty. The second also cannot be mistaken. She owes to her indestructible girdle that eternally charming smile that enchants us even in pictures. Juno is distinguished by her severe and majestic beauty. Would you know the cause of this wondrous assemblage? Look down from Olympus, where these things are passing upon the shore that lies below there you see a river-god wild of countenance lying among high reeds with thick bristling hair and downward flowing beard the stream does not flow from a vase but breaks forth round about signifying the many mouths by which it falls into the sea the fifty argonauts have landed here at the Phasis, after sailing through the bosphorus and passing the rocking cliffs they are taking counsel together much has been accomplished more remains to be done now both the ship and the enterprise are favorably regarded by all the assembled gods and these three goddesses have come in the name of the rest to beseech cupid the ally at once and the foe of great deeds that he will not be hostile on the present occasion but will cause medea the daughter of Etes to look with a favourable eye on Jason. To persuade Cupid, and entice him from his childish sports, Venus covers her son with caresses and offers him a costly playing ball, which she tells him Jupiter himself had played with in his childhood. And in sooth, the ball were worthy of any of the gods, and the artist has taken the greatest pains in its representation. It seems to be made of stripes, placed side by side but the seams are invisible, you are left to imagine them. Gold stripes alternate with blue, so that when it is thrown into the air, it twinkles like a star. The end of the goddesses is achieved. Cupid throws away the dice and clings to his mother's robe. The gift captivates him at once, and he promises immediate satisfaction of their demand. Glaucus, the sea god. The Argo is cutting its way through the middle of the Pontus. Behind lie the Bosphorus and the Simplugades. Orpheus calms the listening waves with his singing. The vessel bears a noble freight, for there are the Dioscuri, Hercules, the Iacides, Boreades, and the other semi-gods, who flourished in those days. The keel of the galley is sound and secure, well suited to its freight, for it was cut from a Dodonian prophetic oak and its gift of oracle and prophecy has not wholly departed from it you may distinguish one on board who seems to be the leader he is not the most distinguished nor the strongest but young eager keen fair-haired he conciliates our good will it is jason he has embarked to bring back the golden fleece of the monstrous weather which Phrixus and Hela brought through the air from beyond the sea. Hard is the task imposed upon the young hero. He is unjustly driven from his father's throne, and may not return to the kingdom of his ancestors, save under the condition that he shall bear away this treasure from the ever-watchful dragon. This is the cause that has stirred up all the heroes in his aid and service. Typhus holds the rudder. Lincius, the inventor of his art, sends from the bow a sharper glance than the sun's into the farthest distance discovers the most retreating shores and sees every dangerous rock beneath the water but lo even the sharp eyes of this all-observant man seem to betray astonishment he sees a fearful appearance break forth unannounced unexpected from the waves the heroes in simultaneous amazement cease from their labour. Hercules alone continues to ply his oar. What seems a miracle to the rest is nothing new to him. Used to labour without ceasing, he continues to row as before, unconcerned at what passes around him. All eyes are now bent on Glaucus, who rises from the sea. Glaucus was once a fisherman, but over curiously tasting seaweed and kelp The waves closed over him, and bore him, changed into a fish, down among the fishes. He still remained half-man, and the gift of prophecy was bestowed upon him, and now he rises to unfold their future fate to the Argonauts. We see his figure. The sea-water drops and trickles down over his breast and shoulders, to show the speed with which he rose. His thick eyebrows grow together into one. The mighty arm with which he uses to seize and put by the waves is grown powerful with exercise. Moss and grass are twined with the hairs upon his shaggy breast. On the lower part of the body you see the beginning of the fishy scales. You guess at the remainder of his figure from the tail which lashes the sea behind, twines about his hips, and whose curved and crescent-shaped end reflects the colours of the sea. Halcyons swarm around him, who also sing men's fate, for they too were transformed, and made to build their nests and ride upon the waves. The sea seems to take part in their song, and Orpheus to listen to its tones. End of section 30 Recording by Florence